1: The secret to living life successfully is to recognize that you can be different from what is happening to you. Wow, that's
0: deep stuff. Welcome to Smart People Podcast. I am Chris Stemp. And I'm John Rojas. This is the episode of episodes. Who was that quote by? That quote was by Dr. Srini Pillay. Who just happens to be... This week's guest.
1: Yes. Why are we finishing each other's sentences (sighs) like we're dating? Well, because we're so excited after that. That was the coolest interview ever. It was amazing. Well, I, I, know, I know we say that all the time now, but this top two. Top two. Yeah. Top, Easily. Well,
0: top three, because I don't know the other two, but I'm sure I'll throw it in top three. But as soon after we interviewed him, we were talking about it. And one of the first thoughts, there is not a statement that came out of his mouth that was useless.
1: No, there was no filler, no fluff. None of that. I mean, there wasn't even pauses in between some of the stuff he said. He
0: was so on point the entire time. I felt like he was giving a presentation, but there weren't planned questions. Like, it's not like he could know this was happening. And we didn't have to pay for it. That was the best part. uh, I want to talk to people like that for an hour. Seriously, guys, get pumped. Dr. Srini Pillay. He told us not to call him Dr. Pillay, and then I did accidentally, but um, really nice guy. He is, it was almost tough to, to talk about because he's everything. He's an author. He's written incredible books, which I'm buying every single one. One of them, Life Unlocked, Seven Revolutionary Lessons to Overcome Fear. He recently wrote Your Brain in Business, The Neuroscience of Great Leaders. And he also wrote one that I thought was really cool. He talks about a little The Science Behind the Law of Attraction, He's an assistant clinical professor at Harvard. He was an NIMH and NARSAD-funded researcher, which is like National Institute of Mental Health. Roach, what else you got? Not only that, he was the director of the
1: Outpatient Anxiety Disorders Program at McLean Hospital. And this is one of the
0: forefront leading... Anxiety research centers. Exactly. Pretty amazing. And he was the director of it. He's a rock star. And then he started a company. He's the CEO of Neurobusiness Group, which is a company focused on enhancing social intelligence in companies. So he has a medical background and he knows, you know, brain imaging, brain he's a brain scientist. And he uses that to help in the workplace, but it's not, in this, it's not in this method of like, hey, get more out of your employees. It's like, be more in tune with how we work and everybody benefits. You're, you're less anxious. You're more productive. You're happier. All these things. It was incredible. Yeah. And Chris and I talked about this a little bit. We could have easily talked to
1: Sereni for two, three hours about anxiety, about stress, but we didn't want to turn it into the John and Chris self-help hour. Yeah. We wanted you guys to get something out of this, but my mind's still blown from this conversation. I know. And so are
0: we, are you guys getting anxious? You're like, okay guys, you told us how great he is. Let's listen. But uh, a couple things before then, and they seem so minute now. Like normally I'm excited for this part, but I'm like, just I don't, get to the interview. I don't agree. I think everybody should head over to iTunes now to rate
1: us, comment on our podcast, move us up the chart so we can continue getting
0: guests like Dr. Pale, Yeah. You got to rate it after this one. Oh, if this doesn't stir you up, it's crazy. Like, like I said, I'm, I'm buying every book I'm going, I'm, I have to learn this stuff. So smartpeoplepodcast.com is our website. You can check that out where we post, we'll have videos, we'll have different things. We're constantly changing. I'm working on some other things that are, they're taking a while cause life is busy, but
1: yeah. And when you decide to buy his books, do it through our website, you know, use our Amazon widget, click on the links that we have for the books
0: in the post. We make it easy for you guys. Support the show. Yep. So, uh, okay, that's all we're going to do. We're going to let you talk to him. We'll probably come back after the interview and ramble on a little bit more. But uh, some interesting topics. Dr. Srini Pillay speaks with John and Chris on the Smart People Podcast. First, Dr. Pillay, I want to say thank you for being on the show. As we talked about a little bit Prior to, I'm extremely interested in all the things you do as a psychiatrist, executive coach, you you know, neuroscience. And there's so many things I don't even know where to start. So instead of me doing it, I kind of wanted to ask you a little bit about your background, what you have found you're most interested in, where you've been, and where you want to go with that in a short time period. So I know it's kind of a large question.
2: Well, you know, in general, I think of this as one life. And even though there are a number of different pieces to it when we try to parse it out. It's really one life, and, and I think of all of these different parts as contributing to each other. My background is in medicine, so I went to medical school, graduated as a doctor, and then did a residency in psychiatry, and I've done 17 years of brain imaging research. And when I decided somewhere along the line, you know, I went, once I started directing the anxiety disorder service and found that most of my private practice was actually filled with people um, from corporations that I needed to learn executive coaching. Um, so I added that on as a skill and then found that simply applying brain imaging to medicine uh, seemed um, too straightforward to me. What Really, what I wanted to do was to try to take that information and apply it in a completely different field. So what I did was I developed a, a whole lot of material related to brain science and decided to apply this to corporations to see if we could improve corporate learning. Um, and that was really how Neuro Business Group, uh, the executive coaching company that I have, was formed. Um, and since then, uh, I've run a couple of trainings, have trained people. We've started a company and have decided uh, that we're really invested in learning. In fact, my executive vice president uh, of sustainable learning and I have put together a number of learning paradigms because we found that it's one thing to just show up at a corporation, say something that sounds cool, Uh, But then you find three or six months later, people actually forget it. Uh, So what we've done is developed a number of methodologies and a number of ways of making sure that people can retain the information more effectively, partly because I I now understand how the brain works and um, how we can get the brain to remember things more effectively. So the brief story is that uh, I see there as being a, a continuity between being a psychiatrist and being an executive coach. Um, And as you pointed out, there are a number of other things I'm doing. I'm making movies on the side, doing some music. Um, I I see all of this as being part of the flow that inspires me to do any one piece of work at any one time. And the books that I've written have really stemmed from the two hats that I wear. One is uh, a self-help expert, um, having directed the anxiety disorder service and worked in anxiety and in stress for a very long time. Um, I felt that writing Life Unlocked was... Um, a a really cool way of bringing together the brain science for the general public in order to help motivate people to lead more productive lives. Um, And then Your Brain in Business was a book that arose when I started to think about putting the materials that I had in executive coaching um, into a a formal format. And um, Financial Times Press was interested in publishing that. And so that's how that came about.
0: Okay. There were so many things that I, my mind is exploding, but I'm just going to try and pick some out. You mentioned you wanted to motivate people to lead more productive lives. And that's something that I try to do every day. It's been a really long journey because sometimes I'm super lazy, but I'm going to work from nine o'clock this morning till probably midnight tonight on different projects. And it's something I've been trying to do. What have you found in your research motivates people to be more productive, to do the things they want to do, to go that extra mile, that kind of thing?
2: Well, in general, there are two kinds of motivation. There's extrinsic motivation, where people are motivated by being able to earn more money, or uh, you know, being able to maybe some people actually want to stay away from home so they stay out late at work. I mean, there are all sorts of ex- extrinsic motivations that people have, and then there's intrinsic motivation, which I think most people yearn for. And I think intrinsic motivation is a drive that comes from a connection with yourself uh, and the permission to be yourself. And what I find is that uh, when people begin to understand that motivation and and achievement is not about not making mistakes, but really about coming to accept those, they're able to move more freely and then enjoy that movement uh, even more. So my one of, the, one of my mantras when I speak to people is, you know, I'll say to someone, um, would you like to live an exceptional life? And they'll say back to me, sure, that's exactly what I'd like. And I'll say then, how come every time you talk about your life, you talk about it in terms of probability? By definition, if it's exceptional, it means it's a low probability life, which means that it has to be highly unlikely. So if you use an argument to me and say, well, you know, it's, it's highly unlikely this is going to go anywhere oh, it's highly unlikely I'm going to make a lot of money this way, and if as a result of that you feel not motivated, part of what you need to ask yourself is, well, if it's highly unlikely, then it has a greater chance of being exceptional because for it to be exceptional, it can't be likely. So I think by helping people reframe their lives and by helping them connect with themselves, uh, they're a- they're actually able to, motiv- to, to motivate themselves much more. Uh, you know, there are actual mechanisms that we can use that help the brain harness uh, some of the capacities that we have to to motivate ourselves, ways that we can connect with our passion. And I can go into some of those things with you if you'd like. But in essence, um, in summary, with regard to your question, there are two kinds of motivation, extrinsic and intrinsic. You can set external rewards for yourself, or you can give yourself an internal permission through self-forgiveness and through helping yourself understand that probability is not the most effective guide for an uh, exceptional life.
0: Literally, that, was, that is mind-blowing. And you said something that John and I both jumped to the mic at. When you ever mention the word passion around him and I, because we're searching for it, finding it, it's like the longest road ever. But I would love for you to go into what you were saying about being passionate, finding that passion, using that passion.
2: So there are two kinds of passion that the research generally reveals. One is called harmonious passion, and the other is obsessive passion. Now, sometimes people confuse the two. People feel that if they just drive at something, and they're working all the time at it, and they're really putting in all those hours, that somehow that will get them to a place of passion. And that can steady their minds, and it can help them feel driven for a while. But what the research shows is that obsessive passion is not extremely good for your health, and it can actually deter you uh, from working. Whereas harmonious passion is the kind of passion where you don't feel like you have to do something in order to get something uh, achieved at the end of the line. It's actually some kind of intrinsic in-the-moment kind of feeling that feels like it gels with your life. Now, one of the questions is, well, how can you achieve a state of harmonious passion rather than obsessive passion. And I think most people who um, who basically trip out to their work will say to you, well, I, you know, I feel really lost in it and I love it. And and that's how, and you know, when I get lost in the work, it feels really great, but it needs a lot of discipline. Now, there's a re- recent body of research that's particularly interesting. And there are more than 100 studies on this idea of self-regulation. So, you know, a lot of times people will say, you've got to regulate yourself. You've got to get yourself in check. You've got to be disciplined. Well, what the studies show is that For a large number of people, if you are involved in self-regulation, meaning you're trying to control yourself for a prolonged period of time, and then you do some kind of cognitive test to test your thinking ability, oftentimes those who have been regulating more than the other group uh, perform much more poorly on the tests afterwards. And that's because the self-regulating part of the brain becomes exhausted. And so the ability to think actually diminishes. So I think one of the keys about living a life of harmonious passion, is to be able to alternate self-regulation with relaxation, to give yourself a sense of permission uh, about various things in order to explore things, and to recognize that in order to really feel passion, part of what you've got to do is feel the permission to explore. And the permission to explore technically means that you do not know where you are going. Now, we live in a life now which is full of knowledge. People have all sorts of directions. you know. Even this podcast that we're doing is about, well, how would you recommend people do things? I don't see the value of what I have to teach as necessarily being within the content of what I have to teach. What I hope people get from this energy that I'm using to communicate is that it's about finding your passion. Is really about giving yourself permission to discover the unknown. It's not necessarily doing what someone else did. You know, I, I once had a, a pretty famous entrepreneur and a business executive who said to me, when I stand in front of a business audience and I talk about innovation, I know exactly who has a likelihood of being innovative and who doesn't. The person who's copiously taking notes in order to do exactly what I did is probably the person who will not be innovative. The person who's reflecting on what I'm saying and having their own conversation about it in their heads, the person who's converting it into something that they own, that person is much more likely to be passionate. So in summary, in relation to passion, I would say that to tap into harmonious passion, it's important to realize that you need to learn how to walk in darkness because harmonious passion correlates with discovery and technically, in order to discover something, it has to not be known. And the second thing I would say about that is that alternating self-regulation with a whole lot of self-expression and sometimes even overstepping the bounds to the extent that you can pull yourself back without much regret i think that learning to play that game of life and learning to accept that that's part of how we are is is especially helpful you know one of the things that i've learned through these 17 years of brain imaging research is a pretty humble lesson you know i've learned that we're endowed with an amazing thinking brain which is extremely large compared to other animals and it's pretty powerful but we also have an extremely powerful emotional brain and Unfortunately for us to a certain extent, these two parts of our, of our brains are often uh, at odds with each other. So you have this passionate, impulsive uh, part of yourself that just wants to let loose and wants to completely explore something and take risks. And there's another part of your brain that's a thinking brain that wants to keep you in check. And I think that a lot of people try to become perfect at what they do. But perfection is really a formula for disaster when it comes to passion. And it needs to be distinguished from excellence because perfection is really unrealistic. When you tell the brain, I need to be perfectionistic, it's like telling the brain to go to Mars without any vehicle. It's sort of, it just feels absurd. Whereas if you strive for excellence, anybody who is an expert at what they've done will tell you that excellence comes not from not falling, but from knowing how to get up after you fall.
1: This is absolutely amazing stuff. And Chris and I are definitely just jotting down notes here, trying to think of other things to say. And I have to ask you this because you're talking to two guys that suffered from anxiety, panic attacks uh, when we both first started working at at, at our corporate jobs. Did you see any relation to people not following their passions and being more anxious and being more stressed in any of the studies or research that you've done?
2: Well, there's a large amount of research to suggest that being more anxious can actually be related to, to not accessing your passion. So is your question whether being anxious stops you from connecting with your passion?
1: It's more, is anxiety a result of not following your passion or not chasing your passion?
2: Well, it, it can definitely be that. And, and part of that has to do with the fact that if you are not chasing your passion or not following your passion, partly what you're doing is, is trying to self-regulate, right? So you're basically saying, I must remember not to do this because that's risky. I must remember not to do this because someone told me I might be a loser. I must remember not to do this. The funny thing about the brain, and this has actually been extensively researched, uh, it's a it's this phenomenon called ironic process theory. And what this body of research tells us is that when you tell your brain not to do something, it does the exact opposite of that. So for example, you know, you're at a party and you're carrying a glass of red wine and you're walking across the room and you're saying to yourself, I must not Don't drop the <laughs> red wine. Yeah. And the next thing you know, it's as if your brain's completely <laughs> retarded. It's like all of a sudden, the wine's all over the white couch and you're saying to yourself, what's going on? Like, yeah. I, I thought I was being so careful about it. Well, studies show that under stress, the conscious brain is actually knocked out. So the, the lights are turned out, so under stress, you have mostly your your more primitive brain or your unconscious brain that reacts and so when you say "Do not drop the red wine," effectively, the unconscious brain, through a mechanism known as priming, simply hears doesn't hear the do not part it hears the impact part of the sentence, which is drop the red wine, and so it thinks it's being obedient, and so what it starts to do is actually drop the red wine. And studies have shown this extensively. There's actually been studies of uh, soccer players who are trying to score penalties. And if you attach eye-tracking devices to their eyes, and if they say to themselves, do not kick the ball to the right side of the goalpost, their eyes move to the right immediately. So what this tells us is that if you are trying to restrict yourself all the time, the body actually acts in the opposite way. And that would be the first fact that I would, I would share with you in relation to anxiety. So obviously, you're going to get anxious if you're constantly feeling like you're messing things up because you've honestly tried to restrict something, but you haven't been able to be successful at it. This has even been shown for office romances, you know, for a whole lot of different phenomena. You know, when you say to yourself, I must remember, I shouldn't fall in love with this person, or this is wrong, and the next thing you know, it's as if you can't help yourself. And, and in addition to that, I think when, you, when you're not, my sort of fundamental feeling about anxiety is that anxiety is an expression of a tension between an observing self and an experiencing self. And so a lot of us are constantly observing ourselves. And if you stay constantly in the position of observing yourself, you're not really in the zone. You're not really in the moment. But anybody who knows what in the zone is will know that there's pretty much no anxiety in the zone. The anxiety might drive you into the zone. But if you're about to sort of score a goal, if you're about to score a touchdown, if you're about to jump in the air and have a triple toe loop, if you're about to hit an amazing shot, if you're about to dance, if you're about to listen to your favorite song, there's something about losing those tensions that puts you in a completely different zone. And part of that is the not holding back and the not observing. Because I feel like we one of the one of the side effects of all of this knowledge is that we start to over-observe ourselves. And I feel that during practice, it's important to observe, but it really is important to get into this rhythm of observing and letting go. Observing and letting go. Because that rhythm has, is much more likely to bring you to your passion. If you're constantly observing, it can actually increase your level of anxiety as well.
0: So I wanted to talk about how brain science, specifically brain imaging, ties into this. Because when I think brain imaging, you know, I think, and I think I'm kind of close, but I don't know. You have this picture of the brain and and you ask questions or you do something, you stimulate some part and different parts light up. But that's about the extent of my knowledge. So if you could kind of dumb it down for us, how this research that you do and these things you do actually lead you to understand the brain and then humans and our actions, all that.
2: Sure. Well, you know, one of the things we do when we go into corporations is we actually talk to people about how to use the brain science to improve leadership skills. So, I'll give you two examples. One example is you go into a company and you see a manager and the manager is pretty much a jerk to all the people that the manager is working with. And the manager feels that by by simply cracking the whip and having everybody sort of be in shape that they'll get better results. Now, when you increase anxiety, you actually improve concentration up to a certain point. But beyond that point, you get a lot of burnout. Now, if you look at brain functioning, what you find is if you show someone an image of anxiety or fear or threat for uh, for basically 30 to 150 milliseconds, that's long enough for them to say, I saw the fearful face or the threatening face. And if you look in the brain, you'll see that the fear center of the brain activates. And what that tells us is that the amygdala is activating and is the fear center of the brain. Well, if you show them an image for between 10 and 30 milliseconds, what you'll find is because it's too short for the conscious brain to pick up, the person will say, I didn't see anything. And when you look in the brain, the brain will still register that fear. And we actually find this finding even in people with a condition known as cortical blindness, where they're blind, but you show them pictures of fearful faces and the fear center of the brain lights up. And what this tells us is that the unconscious brain is very sensitive to fear, that if we expose ourselves to fear-inducing stimuli, and if we are afraid unconsciously but can't recognize it, the fear center of the brain may still be activating. And the relevance of this in business is that you may not feel the fear, but you may find that your thinking is affected, you're not able to concentrate, you don't make the right decisions, you're constantly messing up, you can't concentrate, you're distracted, Well, what we find is because the the fear brain or the anxious brain is connected to the thinking brain, when unconscious fear strikes, you don't identify the fear because it's unconscious. But we know that it still activates the fear center of the brain. And because it connects to the thinking center, a lot of people will just try to get themselves to attend more, concentrate more. They'll say, I've got ADD. I just simply can't focus on this. Well, the next time you can't focus, hypothesize that it's possible for you to, to be distracted. It's possible that you're distracted because fundamentally you're anxious and maybe there's a way you can address that anxiety. So one of the things I do is I teach people how to harness the prefrontal cortex, which is the thinking brain, through several methodologies that have been shown by brain science to quiet that part of the brain down. And I also teach them how to quiet down the anxiety part of the brain through mechanisms that have been taught, that have been shown in a brain scanner to decrease amygdala activation. So that's one of the concepts that we teach. Another is, you know, I think a lot of companies have problems when people are trying to change or when the company's changed, they have problems with their when their cutbacks, when uh, they find that there's a change in strategy. People don't really adapt to that well. Well, how do they get their employees to be more committed? Simple finding. The left frontal cortex of the brain has to increase in activation in order for commitment to be increased. Several sets of studies have shown us this finding, and there are ways in which we can get people to activate that general region of the brain. So using that basic principle, we have devised methods to be able to help people increase their commitment by activating that part of the brain. In this instance, one method might be imagery. You know, when you tell people to imagine an outcome and they'll be able to get there, a lot of times they're like, oh, this sounds like some kind of nonsense. But the, the, the reality is that When you imagine something, you're actually stimulating the movement part of the brain. This technique has been used for ages in sports psychology. If you look at tennis players, they use this to increase confidence. Look at divers, they improve diving more effectively. If you look at people who do high jump, they're able to jump more effectively. You're even able to lift heavier weights if you do an imagery exercise, imagining that you can lift a heavier weight. Now, obviously, there are limits to this based on your actual physique, in that instance, based on... How long you're imagining for whether you're imagining in the first person or third person, but because we know these facts, facts like the fact that the ways that you can imagine and this is pretty specific research can actually impact the action brain, what we know is that we can then teach people how to how to activate the parts of the parts of their brains that allow them to change more easily, because as you know we 're creatures of habit, and so in corporations. And even in people's personal lives, people will often go back or default back to living the lives the way they used to. So we as as executive coaches, or when I'm working with people in the self-help field, what we do is, is essentially help people. We hold a context so people can practice an exercise that is most likely to activate that part of the brain so that they can change their lives.
1: Is there a very simple exercise that you can give our listeners that would help them while they're becoming too anxious?
2: Yes, and there's an exercise that has some research based in a phenomenon um, called emotional introspection. Now, those are just big words for basically uh, not thinking, but but there's a technique to do this. So studies have shown that if you take two groups of people, one group of people who are involved in this emotional introspection, and the other group in cognitive reflection, which is thinking about how do I solve the problem, what do I do, the group that is involved in cognitive reflection. Increases amygdala activation or the fear center activation, whereas the group that's involved in emotional introspection decreases amygdala activation. The way you do this is close your eyes, and you can you can both do this for right now, so you can feel the impact of it. Absolutely. Well, and you can try this even for thirty seconds. Just close your eyes, and I'll be quiet just for for twenty seconds. If you close your eyes, and then I'm going to ask you to focus either on where you feel any kind of anxiety, or if you don't, simply simply. Notice your breath. But every time you get any kind of thought, let the thought come and go without any resistance, without any future thinking. The idea is to let your attention be anchored to your breath or to wherever you feel the anxiety, if it's in your stomach or in your heart or in your head. So try this out. Slowly close your eyes. And then rather than thinking actively about anything, no judgment, you let go and simply place your attention on where you feel your breath, or where you feel your anxiety. And what you'll notice is that even in those short few seconds, you actually start to get into a zone where you start to let go of that constant machinery of thinking and the amygdala activation starts to decrease. And if you did that for at least a minute or so, you would actually begin to notice the effect. And what I would recommend is doing that for 20 minutes twice a day. And one of the ways in which people learn this formally is through a type of meditation called mindfulness meditation, which is non-denominational, not religiously based. And you can basically Google mindfulness meditation, and you'll find that online and find a center near you.
0: That's wow. that's fantastic. And literally just in the 20 seconds I noticed I was like clenching my fist and like like my squeezing my leg like all these things for absolutely no reason. It's just right. It's weird. And talking about all this stuff regarding the brain and the science behind it, I'm a total believer and not only that, but I feel like are we on the forefront of this or are we far into it? I mean, is could this brain science be the next, you know, industrial revolution or technological revolution? Is this where we're going? Because it's fascinating, say, you can imagine something and actually you can imagine lifting weights and lift more weights. That is, that's, that's, it's craziness, right? Like that's so outside of my realm. Do you think we're just learning things because I, I want us to so we can keep going further?
2: yeah absolutely. I mean I really think we're at the forefront of a new revolution, and certainly neurobusiness Group is particularly interested in in merging technology um, with, with emerging technologies uh, related to to utilizing computers. Um, and a couple of other things which we're working on, which I could talk about it, in, at length, and merging that with what we know about brain, brain science so that we can bring some of these techniques to people. So, you know, rather than simply having people, you know, it's, it's one thing to say, try this technique. And most people will find that after a few days, they will get tired and go back to their old habits. If you can have something that you can go to online in your own time, in your own way, and figure out that if you go there, every time you're doing that, you're training your brain you 're taking advantage of the fact that the brain can change a phenomenon that we call neuroplasticity if you if every time you go back and you try out an exercise and you know that you 're changing your brain in a particular way it 's a pretty powerful thing so I think one of the biggest things that neuroscience brings us is this knowledge and I, I do think we 're at the forefront of it. I think there 's a tremendous amount of hope. Uh, I also think there 's a lot of, sort of you know crazy stuff out there about it so it's it 's important to be careful about where you look and it 's important to be careful. About how you invest your time and energy in specific exercises, uh, and also to be humble about it, because as much as we 're very invested in the neuroscience research and we 're very invested in the science you know having been in science for such a long time i 'm pretty humble about it because I find that every three or four years we 're finding out something new or something additional or finding that something has changed, so I think at the same time that we 're learning what we 're doing and we 're leveraging that. We also need to be humble about it so we can be open to new information as it comes our way.
0: Right. I know you have a bunch of books, all of which look phenomenal. And honestly, every single one I'm buying, by the way, like I'm fascinated. But I wanted to ask you a quick question about the science behind the law of attraction. Could you kind of tell us a little bit about that? Because I've heard, obviously, the, the phrase, but the way you talk about it in your book and just the title, the subtitle, and the few notes that I've read, it seems like a real thing that we can really do and benefit us.
2: Well, absolutely. You know, I, I decided to write that book because I think the law of attraction works. But I, I felt like there were a large number of people who felt that it just sounded crazy. And and I think they're right to a certain extent. I, I think if you just sit down on a couch and then close your eyes and try to abstractly sort of imagine something for two seconds and suddenly think $10 billion is going to fall into your lap, it's pro- that, that I think is pretty unlikely. It would be an exceptional <laughs> life. Yeah. But but it's pretty <laughs> unlikely. Uh, what the law of attraction is about, the science is about, is basically saying that you can change your brain in order to increase the likelihood that what you want is going to come to you. So one example is the one I used earlier, the idea of no. That if you if you learn how to self talk, if you learn that every time you you say I must not do that, if you change that into a positive frame, then that means that when you're under stress, you're more likely to attract the outcome you want because you're not going to encourage the brain to do the opposite because you're framing things in the positive. And another construct here is what I call, um, well, there's the concept of mirror neurons. You know, a lot of times we say, oh, you know, that sounds ridiculous to think that we are that we can cause certain reactions in other people. But the reality is that we have a set of neurons in our head, which are, which are called mirror neurons, that reflect other people's emotions. So, you know, a lot of times people will say, when you come home, you know there'll be one person who's in a good mood, another person in a bad mood, and all of a sudden everyone's in a bad mood and and part of the reason for that is that emotions are contagious because other people reflect our negative feelings. so if you want to have a more positive life, part of what you have to do is put out positive feelings, not just to abstractly you know call in from the magical sphere uh, positive feelings, but because positive feelings in your brain activate the mirror neurons in someone else's brain to be able to reflect those positive feelings. And it starts off their circuits as if they're feeling positively. And that's why positivity leads to positivity or can attract positivity. It's not that there's some kind of unknown magnetism. It's that the brain responds in that way. And in this book, I outline several things along with several exercises so that people can actually look at the ways in which the law of attraction works not in an abstract way, but in terms of the way the brain actually works.
1: For our listeners, where can they head that you recommend for them to research this topic more? I know you've got your website, and we definitely want you to plug that on here so they can go there and, and get the information. But is there anywhere else that you know, you'd like to direct our listeners
2: Sure. I mean, you know, so, so my, my website is neurobusinessgroup.com. And it's right now, it's actually going through a, through a transition, and we will have a ton of information there. Um, you know, another place where there's a lot of information uh, are actually online journals. So, training industry, for example, uh, has a lot of things. If you're in the corporate industry and want to find white papers or want to understand more about this, uh, I've published information like this in places like The Mark or places like The Ivy Journal. So if, if you Google a phenomenon that you're interested in, you generally will find a large number of journals. And I, I would recommend initially trying to condense some of the popular articles in journals uh, rather than only looking at books. First, Firstly, because by the time books are published, you don't necessarily get the most up-to-date information. So books are good for grounding. Um, but I think if you Google that online... Um, you know th- I think that that can be particularly helpful another author whose whose works I would recommend is uh, Daniel Amon, who is i, I think you know, a particularly prolific writer a uh, m e n is his name and he 's uh, uh, someone who 's done an extensive amount of brain imaging research and then John asaraf who himself was in uh, the-, the movie The Secret, has actually started a company called Praxis Now, which allows people to um, to do what he calls inner size. Which is essentially do brain-based exercises in order to improve their lives. So I would say, in terms of names, uh, Daniel Amen and uh, John Assaraf, and I think in terms of places, you know, going to Daniel Amen's book certainly I think would be a great thing. Um, Mark Waldman has actually written some books uh, on this, on the brain in relation to spirituality, in relation to a whole lot of other topics as well. Um, and, and then googling this generally, uh, I think will get you to a lot of good journals as well.
0: And then also, um, could you let our listeners know, I know you're on Facebook and uh, what your Twitter handle is because I know that's how I got in touch with you and uh, I know you're active on there. I was really appreciative of that. Where can they find you on there?
2: It's simply you could Google my name. So my first name is Srini. It's S-R-I-N-I. And the last name is uh, P-I-L-L-A-Y. And you'll find all of the information about facebook twitter and everything else at neurobusinessgroup.com so it's n-e-u-r-o and the word business group all one word neurobusinessgroup.com
0: all right and thank you so much this was fascinating i'm i'm going to continue looking into this and i'm probably going to be tweeting you or facebooking you in the future just because i'm personally fascinated so again thank you so so much
2: sure thank you very much it was great talking
0: to you all right you too have a good night you too all right bye-bye Welcome back, everybody. We weren't lying to you, were we? It was pretty incredible stuff. I don't know. What, what do you think, John? What's going on over there? I'm picturing everybody heading over to our
1: website right now and buying his books. Are you? That's a good thing, I think.
0: Yeah. No, it's, it, it is. It is. I don't know which one I'm going to buy first because I always buy 20 books, and it, I, I'm kind of a slow reader because I dive into them. But what did you find super interesting Like now that we look back on it? First, we have to apologize for the dead air that we had during the exercise, but I hope
1: everybody used that time to take advantage of actually doing the exercise as we did. Unless you were driving. Yeah, unless you're (laughs) driving, flying a plane, you know, anything, operating heavy machinery, please don't (laughs) do it then. But I truly enjoyed that. And I actually, a couple years ago, used to fall asleep that way, where I would imagine myself being less anxious and try to loosen my muscles from like the top of my head down Mm. to my toes. And I could never make it past like my abdominal area. I would always just be
0: completely knocked out at that point. Anytime I hear the word abdominal. Abdominals. uh, Abdominals, that's what I think of. But I think it's not even necessarily unclench your muscles. It's like allow the thought to come in. And then just let it go. And it, he, it, the coolest part about talking to him is he has this science, this this these years of like images and literally as much as we know. You could be sitting there going, yeah, but what is science? Well, as much as we know right now, he has it and it's proven through this. Like it changes your brain. It turns certain parts off. It makes you happier. It does all this stuff. Meditation, I'm doing it. So am I. I'm definitely all in on that concept. You know what I really liked was when he talked about observing versus experiencing. I feel, and he talked about the zone, which we've talked about before. Our second episode was, I yeah, think, sports, sports psychologist, right? think that was long time ago. Yeah, but, and, and I talk about flow, you know, and that's kind of that whole thing. I tend to observe way too much. And when you observe, you're constantly observing yourself. You're observing the way you move in your environment. It's stressful. It's way too stressful. And the way that other people are perceiving you in the environment, which relates back to Brene too. And
1: we all do it and we just need to stop. We need to be in the moment.
0: Yeah. Experience rather than observe. Like it just all those things. So I want to learn a ton more there. I don't know, guys, we're interested to hear what you thought of this. Um, Make sure you, we have, we're almost at 800 people on Facebook. So we're starting to generate some, some conversations and things like that. So let us know what you thought. Check us out on Twitter, our website. These are the ones that really get us fired up. And we have amazing guests still coming up. I mean, it's just, this is so much fun. This is why we do it. Yeah. Thank you guys for
1: letting us live our passion.
0: That's right. Smart People Podcast. See you guys next week.